You're listening to the MyMac.com podcast with your host, Tim Robertson. Hi, I'm Tim Robertson, the publisher of MyMac magazine, MyMac.com. This week, David Cohen, Guy Searle, and myself speak with Jason Heiner. Jason is the editor-in-chief of the Tech Republic, working over there at CBS Interactive. You know, you get to hear Jason on a lot of podcasts, but this is the show that you're going to learn about Jason, his history, what he's doing now, and maybe a little bit more. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Enjoy. I said this is the 254th weekly episode of the MyMac.com podcast. Thanks for downloading. This week's show, we've got David Cohen here. Hey, David. Hello, how are you? Doing well. How's the weather there in the UK? Sunny and spring-like all the time, I understand. It's kind of uh, mixed up at the moment. You know, one minute it's pouring with rain, the next minute it's blue skies. In the UK, that's unheard of. (laughs) We love our rain. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of have to. We love talking about our rain. So what are you doing over there, Guy Searle? How's the weather there? Uh, weather here, it, it's it's hot and sunny with uh, this traffic coming <laughs> on the I-4. Um, uh, actually, uh, as you know, I, I've I've been kind of a beach guy lately. Uh, I had a high school reunion down in Fort Lauderdale, and then last week we were uh, we were down in the Outer Banks. So, you know, I'm tan, I'm fit, I'm ready. Let's go. You were showing the iPhone off to all your classmates, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, they're all like, ooh, that was so cool a year ago. Yeah, well, especially especially the 75% of them that also had one. Yeah, I know. It kind of loses its luster after a while, doesn't it? Yeah. So we also have a special guest this week, Jason Heiner. He is – well, go ahead. What's your resume, Jason? I know that you're the editor-in-chief of the Tech Republic, correct? That's right. That's right. I also we, – we have a sister site, ZDNet, uh, and so I also uh, contribute uh, over there as well. And CBS and, uh, Interactive. CBS Interactive, so, so that's our whole business unit. So that includes uh, our other sister sites, CNET, you know, CBSNews.com now, GameSpot uh, as well, and TV.com. So you're like the hardest working things. man in IT nowadays. <laughs> yes. It yes. seems like it. I mean, you've, you've got your finger in a lot of pies there. Uh, yeah, it's true. Now, really, Tech Republic and ZDNet is mostly what 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 I do. So uh, you know, you know, but it's it's a, a different world. And now we hustle. We do lots of different things. We do podcasts and video, and you know, write articles and, and all of that. So everybody that's you know still around as a staff member on on any of these sort of publications nowadays, you know, you got to wear a lot of hats. I know Tech Republic is really one of the, if not the preeminent site for IT professionals. But it almost seems like it's kind of outgrown just the whole IT mentality. Do you think that too? Well, yeah, mostly because IT professionals are also interested in uh, other things as well. I mean, we, we serve our audience. We know that they do, uh, you know, IT professionals. They also tend to be the tech support for all their friends, family, and neighbors. They also tend to love sci-fi. They do. So we provide content that also serves some of those needs, knowing that the core of what we do is, you know, helping IT pros at work. But we do some other content. And, and the, in our forums and in our community, they talk about some of that other stuff as well. Yeah, your site's really a, a huge community site now um how did you get involved in technology originally oh interesting yeah so 
since this is the you know my Mac um, <laughs> podcast, I can say that my first computer was a Mac. Um, I was in uh, high school, and I was the the editor of the newspaper my senior year, and we had we were one of the first ones to go all Mac and to do desktop publishing for our our newspaper. And so we had Mac SEs in our little journalism lab. And my senior year, I worked all summer before my senior year, worked two jobs and uh, saved up that year all summer. And, and at the end of the summer, I bought a Mac Classic. And wow. uh, that, that, was, uh, that was my first computer that I owned. Um, and that way I could work at home because we worked sometimes. It was a weekly paper. And when we had deadlines coming up, we would work uh, at night, we would sometimes work till eight or nine o'clock at night uh, on the on the paper, and this way just I trying could to get it done. Go home, yeah, just trying to get it done, especially the day before. Um, you know, it was it was due to to go to the printer. So uh, so I started that way with, with uh, as, as a Mac guy um, in journalism, and then I eventually uh, you know learned Windows and stuff too in college. And, and when I graduated from college, I went in. I worked in IT for for four years uh, with a an allergy and asthma care center. Um, and we did actually a lot of imaging and photography and stuff like that on, on Max there too, which was pretty cool. And then I, I was writing freelance for, for Tech Republic uh, toward the end of that and eventually joined Tech Republic as a senior editor in, at the end of 2000 and, and uh, been here ever since. So you took a lot of classes in writing, I take it. Um, did you mm-hmm. think you were going to be a writer the whole time or was it just an interest of yours at the time? Yeah, so I always wanted to be a writer. Uh now, a journalist was a different story, you know, uh, and, and those are two different things. Yes, it things. is. It, that's two different practices, obviously. It definitely, definitely. So, but, in, you know, it wasn't real great to be a journalist in the mid-90s when I was graduating from college uh, because I was going to do newspaper journalism, and newspapers were folding all over the country uh, at that time, mostly um, – cities that had multiple newspapers. So it was a flooded market. You couldn't make any money. It was just a terrible time to get into journalism. So that's why I went into IT, but I still wanted to write. And I always wanted to to write. And then I eventually channeled that into to writing for technologists, writing for IT professionals, writing for people who were in, into technology and uh, you know really enjoy it. It's, it's a way for me to combine two loves, you know, writing and tech. So Don Hewitt, uh, creator of 60 Minutes, and he was uh, just a huge guy in the pioneering of news and television, died this week. Yeah. And a lot of people are eulogizing him of what he did for journalism on television. Do you think we've got to the point yet with the Internet where we have a, a pioneering person or a core group of people who are really taking the Internet to the next level as far as not necessarily investigative journalism, but just writing in general? Do you think there's anybody out there like that yet? Mm, that's a that's a great question. I, in terms of writing, you know, it's it's there's not really one person to point to uh, that much that I can think of. I can think of some people that are pioneers in blogging and have done some really good stuff. Um, you know, somebody that I really like is actually um, Ryan Block, who was the former editor in chief of uh, Engadget. Now he kind of has his own site. Um, there's, you know, Leo Laporte in podcasting is somebody that um, I think has done some really amazing things. I know that's edging into a different medium. Um, no, but they kind of they, they kind of combine now. I mean, you, you, you yes. look at video and podcasting and writing; it's all on the internet, but yet it's all kind of interconnected at this point. It's all digital content. Well, like MyMac.com alone. I mean, we started out as a, a downloadable. Um, it wasn't PDF; it was DocMaker at the time because PDF didn't exist. 
uh-huh. and people would download it from AOL or eWorld or first class BBSs and I mean all over the place. And we eventually migrated to the web once it got to the point where we said more people are going to be looking at this on the internet, not on the the services that you could subscribe to. So we were very early jumping onto the web. And the podcast, I'd never considered myself a podcaster, really. The podcast was simply something else that we offered as part of MyMac.com, as part of the reviews and the how-tos and the blogs, and now we're doing podcasting. So it is all, at least in my mind, connected. Yeah, so you're definitely a pioneer. I mean, I think and that's the thinking that's driving a lot of what's happening. And there are people even in in traditional journalism roles that are that have kind of migrated to online very well. I think of you know my friend um, Jason Snell, who's the editor of MacWorld. Sure. Uh, you know, came from from that. Uh, you, you know, came from the magazine world and uh, has now taken up blogging. Um, and uh, the web, you know, writing for the web and is fantastic uh, web journalist. And not only that, but, a, a, you know, a fantastic sort of leader of, of his publication and taking it to the web. I, he was one of the first to take an old magazine and say, look, we're going to be a website first and then we'll feed the magazine with the stuff that, uh, you know, we publish uh, and, and that kind of thing. So, so there are some people really doing some great stuff out there. I'm actually glad to, to mention Jason Snell because now that I'm on the MyMac podcast, I can tell him, look, I'm a Mac expert now. I, I, I've been on the MyMac podcast. What, so. what he's done with Macworld is phenomenal. I mean, I thought for a while there, the magazine was dated the day it came out, and the website just didn't get updated enough. It was ugly. Uh, there was no content there that was original. It was just repurposed stuff from the magazine. And it really was him that kind of turned it all around and made him a powerhouse again. It is. It really is. You know, all, Jason really spearheaded the whole thing, as I understand it. And and even I know somebody that was there that the, the guy that kind of put him in charge of, of turning it around. And he, he really credits him with, you know, getting it and and taking it to the web and, and making it uh, making it matter again, making it relevant. I would say David Pogue would be in that list as well. He came David from Pogue, yep. the back, spa- back page of uh, Macworld Magazine, got the gig at the New York Times. But he didn't. He he wasn't satisfied with just writing an article for the New York Times. I mean, he's doing audio. He's doing video up there. Uh, he's kind of almost dragging the New York Times into this new ecosystem that we're in in technology. And I, I credit David Pope for kind screaming. of. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at their website when he first got there, it was just articles. That's all it was. David Pope stepped in, and now they're doing a lot of video stuff, a lot of audio stuff. I mean, it's phenomenal what he's done. I don't, I don't know if I can credit him, but at the same token, it, it all started when he got there. So. Yeah, and I, I think you can to a degree. I'm, I'm sorry, but he um, also he's moving faster than they do. I, I've noticed he's as you, and I'm sure you have too. He started stepping out and doing some of his own things because I think they're not moving as fast as enough um, for him or doing enough of the digital things that he'd like to do. So he's just doing them on his own now. Well, he's still, is, he's still, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say what what I find interesting about about guys like David and and I know some of your um, your uh, sort of more distant colleagues at CNET, uh, Jason as well. You know, like the like the the Buzz Out Loud crew who yes. who do a podcast and yeah, they do. They most of them have their own video shows and then they also do TV TV appearances on CBS and on on some of the news channels and everything as well. So you know, they they're kind of really covering a lot of the bases in terms of the media. Um, and uh, I find it interesting that. 
that, that's, that's probably one of one of the best ways to get a, a broad audience appeal is to actually appear in lots of different places, lots of different ways, while still having you know some cool journalistic integrity and and an approach to uh, a, a journalistic approach to how you cover some of the stuff that goes on the tech industry. Because I think we all we all appreciate that you know at some of the edges of, of of the blogs and that sort of thing things get a little bit crazy and and it's all about you know getting the story in first and you know if it's not quite right or the uh, the facts aren't quite right or it's not verified you've just picked it up from somewhere else well who cares i'm sorry you were you talking about TechCrunch? uh and i'm <laughs> just kidding <laughs> oh, i'm sorry you didn't say TechCrunch. i said Oops. that yeah no, sorry I don't want to get into them again because I, I went on a rant with them just a couple of weeks ago and Uh-oh. brought up a blog <laughs> that I posted that I, it just really upset me with with the whole Twitter situation, stolen documents, and I just yes. I, I think it really showed the the lack of integrity there, and it just really really more. upset me. Couldn't agree more. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> you know, I don't know the guy personally. I've never met Mike Arrington, and I at this point I really don't have any desire to. Um, and I don't know. It just seemed like a sleazy thing to do, and I'm glad to know that uh, I, I wouldn't expect to see anything like that at the Tech Crunch or at the uh, Tech Republic. Ooh. No, I, I would never would have. I, I would, I, and I've actually said this to colleagues. I think I can't remember. I think I might have even said it on Twitter. I would have never republished something like that. I wouldn't even read it just because I, you know, even though it was out there, um, I just felt I felt the same way. I felt like it was it it was a low blow to, to publish that stuff. There was no need to, and it really did show uh, a lack of rete- integrity and some of the worst of what the blogosphere could be. And I don't think TechCrunch has to be that. I think there's lots of good stuff that they do. Hmm. Um, I, I just think sometimes they uh, they try to go uh, to to press, as it were, you know, with with stuff as quickly as they can, and they're they're the worst at not verifying stuff and and putting you know rumor up there as as a fact and then as soon as it's published there you know it gets repeated by the in the echo chamber yeah they don't have to work blue (laughs) (laughs) so you got your start in the it industry and moved into writing how did that come about yeah, well, so I freelance. Tech Republic has this interesting take and still has this today of when we created the site, we we um, we didn't want to just go out and try to hire the best uh, freelancers that were out there. Um, one, we couldn't really afford to because companies like IDG and other places, they were paying them too much. Um, but even more, we said, you know, the best way to help IT professionals is to go find IT professionals and teach them and, and help them. Uh, publish stuff, you know, for their peers. And right, so it's going to be relevant. It's going to be relevant. It's going to be fresh. It's going to be timely. And we hired editors to help them do it, to help round off the edges, to help them know, you know, the projects they're working on that could, they could turn into a nice article and all of that. And so I was one of them. Um, I was one of the, the IT professionals at the time. And, you know, I just happened to have this background in journalism. And, and so I, uh, you know, quickly took to it because I, I not only did I, I have journalism skills, but I really liked this approach of taking this community approach, this kind of bottom-up approach to to content. And Tech Republic still has that today. I mean, most of our content, 80% of our content, is published by IT professionals um, who are working in the field and who are writing articles about the stuff that they do and trying to help their peers, whether it be you know CIOs and IT directors or senior engineers or developers or you know network administrators, whatever it is, it's them writing content for their peers and then also being in you know discussing it with their peers. We have this real active community where people hop in and they ask questions. 
questions and challenge people, you know, and then really my job and a couple staff members is to kind of talk about some of the big picture stuff and help, you know, guide the discussion in the right direction and, and all of that. So it, it, I, I still believe in, in the approach that Tech Republic has taken from the beginning with this really community uh, approach to, to content. What's the favorite thing about your job that you would just not give up for anything? What it is about what you do that gets you up in the morning and you can't wait to do it? Yeah, well, there's two things, really. One is the interaction with uh, people on the site. With Because we have this great community, anything that we publish um, – we get uh, people jumping in and, and commenting, commenting on it. And sometimes, you know, they call me an idiot. I, idiot. I get called an idiot, you know, the number of times I get counted called an idiot per week. I, could, I can't really count on one hand. But um, I also get lots of people saying, well, hey, but you didn't think about this. And, hey, what about, um, you know, the other thing over here? And did you know that, you know, there's this going on as well? And so I, I love the, the interaction, the interactivity we have with the community. They call us on stuff. Um, they do all that. And I still just love getting my hands on technology. I mean, uh, in my office in the past week, you know, I've got this a Windows 7 machine running Core i7. I had a, um, I've got my uh, Lenovo laptop. I've had a MacBook Air. I've got, um, you know, iPhones. I've got Windows mobile phones. I've got all kinds of stuff that we have coming through all the time. And, um, you know, iMacs, um, big G5 machines, all kinds of things that we, we have in our labs and stuff. And I just love getting my hands dirty with technology still, touching things, trying things out, seeing what's different. You know, that stuff still gets me going. And then sharing what I learn with the rest of the audience too is uh, is fun. You know, doing something that that's of service that can help somebody, you know, make a better buying decision or tweak something that would be a lot cooler or do something in a cooler way or discover a product that actually could really help them or help someone in their company you know that stuff's just a lot of fun to me if it wasn't technology what would you be writing about you think um probably sports yeah yeah i'm, I'm a big sports fan um it's not as uh the life of a sports writer is uh definitely not as family conducive so i i have a family as well so uh i've dabbled in in sports writing i've even done some free, a little bit of freelance sports writing mostly on indiana university basketball that's uh i, I went to indiana university and uh i'm a big indiana university basketball fan so uh go hoosiers um so i'd probably be <laughs> I doing was waiting for that, that. <laughs> i'd probably be doing something in sports if it wasn't in tech yeah i i'm a huge uh football fan myself but I don't know. You know, when I started my Mac, it was because I actually wanted to hone my writing abilities because I wanted to be a product reviewer at mm-hmm. Stereo Review Magazine, which doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> or I wanted to become a comic book writer, believe it or not. And that's why I started my Mac. I just had no idea that it was going to kind of explode and I'm going to be doing it 15 years later. Wow. When you were writing your school newspaper, did you ever think that you were going to be doing this professionally? And could you ever have imagined back then the forum that you're going to have to write. It's not going to be on a piece of paper that someone's going to spend a quarter for. It's going to be on this computer and the computer is going to be so far advanced than what you had there. Could you imagine that back then? Yeah. So I, I had pretty big ambitions in terms of what I wanted to do as a writer, but uh, the interesting thing is I had this um, argument with once I got into the Mac, I just was like, really loved once i bought my own mac especially i i loved computing and uh there's this little thing that i'm sure you guys remember hypercard oh yes oh yeah um 
and uh, HyperCard, I made some little presentations of things, basically like a, a little book or magazine, newspaper kind of. I did some things with HyperCard, you know, tooling around. And I remember having this discussion with my journalism teacher. I had this very old line um, journalism teacher who was awesome, who actually I probably wouldn't I wouldn't be half the journalist um, that I am if it weren't for her because she, you know, really was tough. Uh, but we used to have these discussions where I'd say, you know, the future of this stuff is on the computer. It's on this computer screen. It's not, you know, this paper in your hand. And I remember her telling, oh, no, they tried that in St. Petersburg, <laughs> Florida. They did that, you know, they, and they tried to get people to do it and they didn't like it. And it's just never going to be there. It's just never going to be – it's never going to work. And I just – we used to have these these arguments all the time about this. I really felt like the future of of journalism of, of publications was on the computer screen and not on not in a in a newspaper have you ever gone back and talked to her since oh yeah oh yeah so i, I actually it's funny i actually need to to to, to talk to her I need to give her a call i've talked to her in a while but um but she eventually converted and she i remember her telling me that she uh uh started doing desktop publishing for her her church uh group she was doing all of the layout and stuff uh, herself, and she was saying that I would have been proud of her that she had done all the layout and had, you know, uh, put that together. Of course, they were still printing it, but you know, it was a it was a little bit of a digital step there. Where do you see the the convergence of podcasting and video and traditional TV? Do you think that that line is going to continue to get blurred, or do you think one's going to kind of take over the other? Mm, that's a, that is a great question. I do think it's going to be continually to be to be blurred. Uh, I do think that the influence, I mean, you look, you know, now we were, you know, a year ago, I was part of CNET networks. CNET had bought Tech Republic back in 2001. And now we're part of CBS, obviously. Uh, CBS is very interested in seeing what's going to happen with the merging of digital, you know, and online with traditional broadcast. I don't think we even really know. I, I don't think anybody has a definitive um, idea or plan of how all of this uh, is going to come together, but we know it is. And uh, so that, that puts CBS, um, and I, I you know, tip my hat to, to Leslie Moonves, the CEO of CBS, because he knew that uh, there's a big opportunity, um, and, and he wanted to figure it out and get his hands dirty, and that's why he wanted to buy uh, CNET and start you know, seeing what we could do together uh, to, to bridge this gap. I, I think there, there is the danger... Uh, that some of these big broadcasters could uh, be overbearing in trying to jump in and, and could in some ways not get it even online. I, I see that a little bit in, in Hulu. Some people maybe would disagree. I think Hulu's a great service. A lot of people love it. But in many ways, Hulu is like broadcast television just slapped on the web. Yes, exactly. And it removes all of the best things of the web, community, you know, some of the sharing and embedding and all of that. And, and, and I user-created content as well. And user-created content, exactly. I think there are some ways in which Hulu is actually – there's part of Hulu that's not necessarily a good trend. Um, and, and, and there's some danger there uh, because, uh, you know, you're going to lose something. Um, so 
but but you know who knows we'll, we'll see how it happens i do think there's no more exciting time to be in the media business than right now i mean we are still in the midst of the greatest revolution in communications in human history and we're probably in the only the first or second inning of it and all of us you know who are doing this in all the different ways that we are and the experiments that we're running you know we're having a chance to to uh, you know write the future in the ways that we're we're doing these things and the ways that we're learning and the ways that we're sharing information with audiences uh so i think it's incredibly exciting and, and a lot of fun i've been saying that for a while that those of us who are doing podcasting and uh, video work online that we're going to look back on this time you know 15 years from now and go i don't know how we did that how did we literally change the world the way we did it's i think it's going to be amazing to to look at the history books 50 years from now and uh you know have heaven forbid i'm not around then <laughs> but i would <laughs> love to Chances see are i won't be <laughs> well you never know <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on what we did collectively, I think is going to be amazing. You hear about people saying, especially older generation, oh, your generation, you're, you guys are lazy and blah, 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 and you don't have a work ethic. But then you look online and you see the huge amount of content being creative, created. I think that this generation is, is extremely outgoing and they have a great worth ethic and they're just not getting credit for it right now. But I think in the future, when we look back, they're going to see from probably, I would say, 1994 up through who knows when this kind of first generation is going to end. Um, and I, I think they're going to be kind of impressed with what we did. I think so. Incredibly productive. I mean, you look at some of the things that, you know, uh, are being done, especially by small groups. Um, you know, look at all the, I mean, your site looks like it could be, could have been created, you know, 10 years ago, as much content as you have on your site, it looked like you'd have a team of, you know, 20 people, 50 people or something like that to create, um, that much content, you know, even something like, uh, Tech Republic. I mean, we have competitors who, uh, have from the magazine world that we compete with, they have four times as many staff members as we do. We produce more content, um, every week. Uh, more original content than they do, even though they have four times as many staff members. Um, and we also, you know, have three to four times as many uh, unique users and page views on the web. Do you credit um, that because of the the desire of the writers? They're really into the. It's not just a job. It's it's their passion. Do you think that's where the credit lies? That they're writing about their passion. I do. Some of it's format, some of it's passion, some of it's just the approach uh, to doing the things like you talked about in different media forms, you know, to just kind of get stuff out there. Um, we also have fewer layers. Um, we've made it easier. So you're, you're, you're going to see more typos in our site. I will, I'll freely admit that. Um, but I don't we, think that's as important today as it was even five to ten years ago. I think I don't people think overlook so that. As as my um, as uh, Jay, I talked about Jason Snell from MacWorld earlier, you know who a they have even have pretty high standards, right? He even says, you know, I he he clicks publish on stuff, and then um, you know uh, somebody says, oh, what about the typo that happened here? And he goes in and fixes and says, what typo? Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you can you can edit it on the fly. I mean, we even do this sort of uh, community. Um, uh, copy editing essentially now because people uh, will ping me all the time. Oh, by the way, you know, you misspelled this or that phrase, you know, is grammatically incorrect or whatever. So we've almost taken the community uh, 
copy editing approach uh, as well. But yeah, I don't think that stuff is important as well. I, I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, but now I think the important thing is getting information out there is, you know, removing some of these bar- barriers and layers uh, that reduce um, the time to get stuff, uh, you know, to the information out there. Um, and the information exchange happening while people are engaged in it. Yeah. Um, it's not even so much of just like throwing as much information out as soon as possible as much as getting people engaged in the discussion at the time that they're interested in it. Yep, and you, you no can't one. beat the web for that. I mean it's, it's right. immediate. The only yep. thing that worries me about, about this, I mean particularly going back to what you're saying, Tim, about you know, 15 years' time looking back on this. And, and I say that, David, because I used to have these things. I called them the grammar Nazis and yeah. because my Mac was downloadable. Yeah, they kind of held me to a higher standard than what they were seeing in bulletin board systems and the web at the time, especially in 95, 96, where the web really didn't exist at all ex- outside of a few colleges. Yeah. Um, and it was all hidden behind, you know, uh, CompuServe oh. and stuff like that. Um, I would get very detailed email from people correcting every mistake that I made in each magazine. <laughs> and right. I took it very seriously. You know, I would apologize and, you know, try to do better. And we had editors at the time, you know, it, literally all the writers would send stuff to me. I would edit, I would send it to Russ Walkowicz who would edit. He would send it on to Jim, another copy editor who would edit, who would send it back to Russ, who would go over those edits and send it back to me. I mean, it was crazy. The amount of work that we did every single month to bring out the monthly issue. Nowadays, you guys simply send me the articles I edit it in post, and I still get a few emails occasionally, mostly from John Nemirovsky saying, hey, you, you messed that up, and I'll go up there and fix it, but I just I don't put as much stock in simple errors like that as I used to. So go ahead with your yeah. point, David. Uh, the only thing that worries me about um, looking back on this you know, from the future is that I worry the Lord this content won't be around. Um, that is because a concern. When, yeah. You know, we, we one of the problems with this digital age we live in is, you know, you stick it all on a computer and it's really easy to lose it, particularly when, you know, companies change hands or they go out of business and, you know, somebody just comes and turns the servers off and, and it's gone. And um, I think that, you know, we had that business recently with the lunar landings and they lost the original, the original yeah. tapes. Yep. And I think we could see, unless we're careful, we could see an awful lot of that. Um, happening in the future where you know some of some of these sites as as they as they transform and as they change and and all this sort of thing a lot of the original content could disappear and it would be a shame if that happened that's a great great point you know i really wish we did have some more flag bearers flag bearers out there uh really championing this idea and saying let's create maybe some some non-profit you know uh digital um archiving uh kind of institutions or, it's gotta be or whatever future proof as well i mean it does. I, you know, i've talked it about does. on this show in the past that if you went back to your old mac right now there's virtually almost no way that you can get the information off and get it on the new machine i mean what you're gonna put it on a five and a quarter inch floppy i mean you know <laughs> yeah. there's it's no a way good to point. get those stuff off there i've got some things that are in i don't know if you guys remember the white the word processor right now oh of course nope. i used it for a long time i loved right now I loved that. That that is still probably my favorite word processor of all time. Um, but I've got files, old files in right now format, and every once in a while I'll go back and want to grab one of those, and then I have to look on the web. It's like, okay, I got to find somebody who's got you BB know, edit. A, a filter. <laughs> BB, BB edit, edit will open it. <laughs> will it? Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so I have to do that. I have to go and find, you know, a filter to open them. So, so, but it's all part of the same problem of the, you know, digital archiving. The thing is, is we, we tend to think of this stuff as not very useful, you know, as sort of being like fish wrap, but, you know, looking at, at, at all of the archiving that done has been done with old newspapers and old magazines. I mean, historians love that stuff. They live by that stuff. You know, they need that. And we will do a disservice to this generation if we don't um, find some better ways to archive some of this stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Fifth, in 50 years' time, 100 years' time, historians would love to have a whole archive of everything that's, that was on Twitter. You know, to go through that. On that same note, David, I mean, isn't so much of it just noise? Well, yeah, but the thing well, is, is what's, what's noise, noise today exactly. is history for the future. Absolutely. And, it's but like you're trash. also not talking about just writing. Yeah. We also have to take into consideration, like this podcast, uh, like the video stuff that we're doing. A lot of people now are shooting their, their movies on their iPhone or their uh just the little disposable video cameras and they simply post them up on their MySpace page or Facebook or wherever, YouTube, and they don't have a copy locally because, you know, it's just, there it is. It's up there. What happens to those when those sites go away? You know, it, it yep. I think yep. you're right, Jason. I think there's actually not necessarily a nonprofit, but there's definitely a business in archiving for the future, but I don't know how anybody would make that profitable. And I don't know if anybody would do it unless there's some kind of a profit in there for them. Yeah. Unless it was somebody like Google or Microsoft or a joint, you know, with some big companies, GE and like Google and Microsoft, for example, that did something kind of like the, you know, Carnegie library, uh, sort of projects of, you know, a a century ago, that kind of thing. That's what I was thinking of when I mentioned nonprofit, but you're right. Maybe the, I don't know, maybe there is a a profit in it. I I do think that in the future, some of the profits going to be, um, you mentioned the noise actually, uh, Part of it is – it made me think of archaeologists you know, because the biggest thing that archaeologists look for when they go to find stuff is trash, the things that people threw away. That's usually how they learn about culture and, and uh, people. So maybe you know, some of our information trash, as it were, a lot of the noise that's out there. In the future, uh, we're going to need ways to search this because there is this explosion of information and there is a lot of stuff that will be useless um, to people. And there's going to be neat ways – need to be ways to search, you know, images based on metadata and, um, you know, video files and audio files. Uh, audio files are a little easier, but uh, we're going to need some tremendous search mechanisms and some huge honking databases that, that archive some of this stuff. And who's going to do that? I, I think it's a, it's a great question. They're, they're, it's certainly, the, you know, the archive.org people have tried to do a little bit of this um, but, you know, even they haven't really been able to, to accomplish all of their goals and, and, you know, their work is definitely incomplete. Oh, and, and you know, most of the stuff they do is, is really front page stuff. It's, you know, if, yep. if you go yep. to our archives up there, I mean, they go way back. I think they go all the way to 96 or 7 uh, with our web stuff, of course. But there's no sub pages. You can't read any of the content we actually provided back then because it's just, you know, basically a picture of what our website was like then. So I don't know. I, I think there's a not just a need for the future, but I think there's a need for right now for somebody to start doing that. I mean, I yeah. wish I had the, the resources to do it because, geez, now I want to do it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine the equipment that would be necessary to do something like that. Well, but you got to remember what's considered a huge amount of data and database now in the future won't seem that big. 
Um, you know, there was a time, Jason, where you were writing everything and slaving it to a floppy drive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you couldn't even use a floppy drive. You can't even put one song on a floppy drive nowadays. And how many songs do you carry on your your portable, portable music device? I mean, it, it's it's crazy. But at the same time, you know, pretty much, you know, whatever type of storage devices or storage media that people have managed to come up with, people have managed to fill them up. I mean, I remember having my first hard drive was a, a 40 meg hard drive that cost me 700 bucks back in 87. <laughs> and I thought at the time, my God, there's no way I'll fill that thing. And, you know, of, of course, now I'm looking at I've got a couple of terabyte drives stuck in here, you know, stuck in the back of this machine through USB and I'm still starting to think, well, do I have enough storage? I'm not sure. You know, so <laughs> I, I think it's you know what, whatever it is that that's going to be archived, and, and whatever it is that's going to be the, the the next step in online content is is basically going to be able to fill whatever type of storage media that comes in the future. Mm, yes and no. I mean, text is still the same size as it always was. Uh, the pictures are a little bit bigger, only because the the resolution is bigger. Um, audio files, depending on the compression, they're not going to get too much bigger. And, and even with high speed internet, nobody wants to download AIF files. Um, I don't know. It, it's an interesting philosophical question: What's going to happen with all this data? Who owns the data in the future? And what is it going to be used for? But for right now, who's going to kind of take responsibility and in archiving this i would love to be able to hand my children a book with all my writing in it eventually but would they even read a book do they even need it in a book format it's it's fun to think about uh we need to take a quick break for a second and thank our sponsor otherworld computing of course our our long-term sponsor here at mymac.com if you guys are looking at some of the new laptops out there the, the brand new macbook pros you can go up to four gigabytes of ram Starts at sixty-three bucks, so get as much RAM as you can for your Mac. Check them out at OWC, or just go to MacSales.com. We love the Mac sales. We love them, and our ads are not as long as Leo's. <laughs> How could they be? How could nice. they be? Nice. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about. You just had a, a an article that you posted as we record this show on Thursday night. This was posted on Wednesday. And it's Apple's gigantic new data center foreshadows a cloudy future. Uh, good article, by the way, Jason. Really enjoyed it. Let's talk about it a little bit. What's going on with this huge data center that Apple created? Yeah, this was a really interesting thing to me. Of course, this is kind of the cross section here. It has some IT implications uh, as well. But I think there's larger implications of kind of what's really Apple's future plan. So they're building this East Coast data center. They already have a West Coast data center um, in Southern California. It's about 100 square foot, 100,000, sorry, 100,000 square foot data center in Southern California. That's Apple's primary one where they run out, you know, they run the App Store and iTunes, obviously, and and, um, MobileMe. Well, they're building this new one on the East Coast. And you, you you know, the, the natural thought is, well, they're just building redundancy, right? It's better to have a redundant yeah. data center. You you know, that way they can fail over if there's, a, you know, a, an earthquake in Southern California or whatever. Um, but the interesting thing is Apple's data center that they're building in North Carolina is 500,000 square feet. It's one of the – when it's done, they're just breaking ground right now. It's going to be one of the largest data centers in the world, sing, of single largest data centers. You know, the, the only other ones really in the 
same uh, category are Microsoft's new data center in Chicago, which is about 400,000 um, square feet of data center space. There's one in Phoenix, the Phoenix One data center, and then the SuperNAP in, in Las Vegas. Those are all about 400,000 square feet of data center uh, space. So it's kind of like, okay, what is Apple doing? Because I don't think this is just um, a growth, just replication and just iTunes. And so I, I, I conjectured with sort of four possibilities. And I'll just sort of run through them and we could talk about them. You know, one was video library expansion. Two was online document storage, maybe an expansion of kind of iDisk and MobileMe. Three was web-based software suites. Maybe Apple's ready to kind of put a toe in the water there with some web-based software. And then four was digital library build out. You know, maybe they're ready to, to kind of, I, I think their tablet, if, if it's true, and I think there's a lot of indications that they're doing something in the, the sort of tablet PC space. I think that this may be more of a Kindle-like uh, sort of competitor than um, and, and great, you know, broader than the Kindle than than you know just a, a tablet PC kind of device. And so maybe there's a digital library kind of thing, which sort of gets into some of the stuff that we were just talking about. So th- that's what I wrote about, and I'd love to talk to it with. Uh, about it with you guys and see what you guys think. Well, let's start at the video library expansion. Yeah. Uh, what do you think that's – what does that mean? So obviously they're, they've already kind of put their toe in the water mm-hmm. of this uh, video – online video rental, you know, video on demand with yeah. iTunes. It's you almost know, with an afterthought Apple for TV. Apple it seems though. It is. It is. But, uh, you know, maybe they're – this is a market that's ready to explode, I, I, I think. You know, Blu-ray is not taken off. Nope. Um, and, and probably won't. And probably won't because people are really waiting. You know, DVD is good enough. Yep. And I think that the, the, even the techies haven't adopted Blu-ray because they're waiting for on-demand movies. They don't really want to mess with discs anymore. They think the next big leap is video on-demand. And Apple, maybe, you know, video takes up a lot of space, a lot of CPU cycles. So this is something that you could do with one of these giant data centers to say, look, we're going to create this massive video library. We're going to offer it on demand via subscription or um, a combination thereof of rental, subscription, all of this kind of stuff. So and that's could a also work some kind of a deal out with the local cable companies and AT&T yeah. and you know, their U-verse system and all that, that Apple could actually be the provider of content to them. True, true. Exactly. And what about Netflix? Maybe Apple and Netflix partnership might be um, an interesting um, possibility. Who I knows? Think, I think probably Apple would buy Netflix before they would work with Netflix. I, I don't. I don't think that Apple has has any any plans to buy Netflix. I, I think that uh, considering how dominant they are in audio, that if they also became that dominant in video, that they would start gathering kind of the the wrong type of of attention to themselves. Oh, I don't think they worry about that at all. I think Apple wants to, to be dominant in everything that they do. Um, and an acquisition of Netflix would make a lot of sense if they did it and basically left Netflix alone. <laughs> They're successful <laughs> that would be, for a That would reason. be the only way they could stay out of trouble. The problem, the problem or maybe they – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Netflix is aligned with Microsoft though because Netflix is, is offering their online on-demand content via the, the Xbox 360. Yeah, but they're Xbox coming out with the same they, – they're coming out with the same thing for the PS3 and Sony – and there's talk about coming out on the Wii with it as well. Um, so I, I, I don't think Netflix is – it may be a strategic partnership, but it's only content delivery. And yeah. remember, Apple has a, just a ton of money sitting in the bank. Just a yeah. ton of money. 
And investors don't like that. They want Apple to do something with that money. And so I, I think an acquisition of that magnitude would make a lot of sense for Apple. But video library extension is definitely up there. Online document storage. That's interesting. Do you need that much space for online document storage? For the home user, this is, I think, you know, which Apple really and, and admittedly goes after. They think of the average user. And the thing, the reason where this translates into business is because small businesses function like this as well. And where Apple sort of has this uh, covert kind of operation in, in, in business, which is with the small biz. And so... Um, this is where we do the stuff like you, you're talking about earlier on our old PCs. We have all of the and, and Macs. We have all of this old stuff that you know we we had from past computers and all of that. And maybe that the the answer is to just put this stuff online and you pull down locally only the stuff that you're working on, you know, and then it goes back to the, um, to the, uh, the cloud as it were when you're, when you're done using it. And I think there's, there could potentially be a paradigm shift coming where we only have on our local machines, the stuff that we're, you know, most u- that we're using most often and, and uh, th- that are using, you know, editing and working on, or if it's your uh, iTunes library, you know, maybe you even have that. Uh, most of the stuff, especially the songs that you're not using very much, you know, besides being on your iPod, maybe you don't keep them on your local machine. You keep only the stuff that you're, uh, you know, have used most recently. And, and then the rest of your library, you sort of store up on, up on the cloud, as it were. Do you think people are ready for... That I mean, I know a lot of people have the the pr- privacy concerns, and geez, Apple's going to see everything that I have. Uh, what yep. if it gets hacked? I think there's a lot of security and privacy concerns. There Do you think are. Apple and it, would address that. I don't know, and that's the big question. It also, I think, for it from a usability standpoint, it has to be transparent. Um, and that's the one thing Apple's done well. Like maybe you have this disc and it sits on your computer and to you, it just looks like it's on your computer. Right. But actually those files are stored on, on a server somewhere. So it would be time machine done right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you've, if you've ever used Dropbox, I mean, Dropbox kind of works exactly that way. You know, it's a local file, it's a local file system. It's a local directory on your machine. Um, but anything you put in there appears on every other machine that's running Dropbox. It's just, and you can also pick every it up one from of the your website. machines. You should every say. one, every yeah, every one of your machines. We want to make that clear because not everyone yeah. listening to this is is using Dropbox. In fact, yeah. I just signed up for it yesterday. I saw that you commented on my Facebook page on that, David. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know it's a great service, and and certainly you know I would if, uh, if you get the free account is like two gigabytes. You know, if I could get a hundred gigabytes and put my entire life up there, then yeah, I, I would do that because the convenience you get from that is amazing. Now, here's exactly. a question, though. Would Apple charge something for this, Jason? They'd have to. I bet they, I bet they give you, like, two gigs free, and then for 100 you pay, you know, nineteen ninety five a month or whatever. I, I think that's most likely, you know, the first, the first hit is free, and then, you know, they get you after that, right? So yeah. that would be or my they, guess. Or they tie it to a particular piece of hardware, say the new tablet, and it's, it's part of the – you know, it's part of the. You get a year of it when you buy your, you know, the expensive eight hundred dollar tablet. I don't know. You would think though, at, at the premium that you have to pay to get an Apple product, that Apple might start looking at value added, in that you know something exactly. like this is going to cost them a lot of money, but they're going to give it to the users for free because you're pretty much locked into that ecosystem. Exactly. One word. And, and- Mobile me. Well, I think that Mobile Me has, has been a, a horrible failure for Apple. 
I know that they've lost a lot of users because of it, including myself. I, I, it just doesn't work well. Uh, there's not a, enough benefit for me for $100 a year because I can get almost all the same services for free elsewhere on the Internet. Um, and as more people get more tech savvy, I think that's going to be more true than not in the future. So I, I, don't, I don't see this as a mobile me. Um, it would have to be something else, and I think it has to be a value added, Jason. Okay. I, 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 I think that it's still an open market, and a lot of it's going to depend on what Google does and what Microsoft does. Because I think Google and Microsoft are both thinking along the same lines, and obviously they're building out big data centers too. I mean, there's, there's a space race in data centers right now um, between Google, Amazon, and, and Microsoft. Uh, and so they're, they're planning this as well. But Apple... You know, their their play could be uh, iTunes. It could be like, okay, but if you use ours, we also sync your iTunes library. Um, it automatically works with iTunes, you know, things like that. There, there could be some value adds maybe there, or it could be, you know, you get the first year for free with us uh, if you buy a, a Mac or if you buy a um, uh, one of these tablets, that kind of thing. I, I think there's a lot of potential here. Maybe a subscription-based service through iTunes that could tie into this. And I think that kind of goes with your next one, web-based software suites. If iTunes was a web-based suite rather than something on your hard drive itself, and all your data is both synced from your hard drive here and up there, I don't know. That could work. I I can't imagine using iMovie over the web, though. Yeah, so this, this is where it gets really interesting because I think we're just beginning to see what are, is really possible with online apps. I think a couple of examples are like Photoshop, um, the Photoshop.com, uh, pretty slick, pretty nice um, editing app. I agree. iMovie, the bandwidth's not there yet, I don't think, to do something with, with video. Although I, I, I'm amazed at what the little basic little video app that's on the iPhone 3GS yeah, um, It's It's more sophisticated me. than I, I was expecting. Yeah, yeah, so I could see an online version kind of like that where Apple does something like that. That's one of the things that makes me think, you know, maybe they're ready to, to pull the trigger on something like this with a an Ajax JavaScript kind of app that has a lot of sophisticated kind of stuff, kind of like you see on Photoshop.com. Even I've seen the new version of uh, Microsoft uh, Office, the online version, yeah. um, which is supposedly the largest JavaScript application ever created, according to Microsoft. Um it's pretty sophisticated. It's pretty slick. And, uh, you know, like Microsoft, all Microsoft stuff, it's a little bit bloated, but there is uh, – yeah, surprise. But but there's yeah. some good stuff there. I mean, it, it, yeah. it really shows what's capable in an online application, and it's going to change the game a little bit, I think. And when you, I see something like that, I think, you know, Apple could take something like this video editor on the 3GS and do a pretty slick little um, iMovie web version of an app or definitely an iPhone. Photo. Yeah, I thought it would be a, a, a logical one to do. That way yeah. you have your pictures here, but they're also backed up online. And when you launch iPhoto, it's just a, I don't know, though, a web-based app. I don't know if pe- people want to have Internet connectivity just to look at their pictures. But if you, if you, look, at, if you look at something like, a, like Adobe Air um, and some of the other platforms that, that you have, on, on, say, on the iPhone, I mean, if you can sort of pair a, an app that can work locally on something but also is able to, uh, 
you know, stored to a back-end service. Um, and, you know, you get different different features depending on whether you've got the net connection or not. And then you throw in a device that maybe has a built-in 3G wireless card or, or something else. And it, it kind of all – the lines start to blur and we move away from this thing about, well, I'm working local or I'm working on the cloud. Um, and, and, again, you know, if Apple is going to launch – if, if Apple is going to launch this this rumored tablet thing that's their sort of take on the netbook, um, I think they would want to differentiate it by by saying, you know, well, it's not really the same sort of compute traditional computing device that you're used to. This is a cloud-based computing device, and something like this might be a very good way of of, of offering that. And I think yeah, that, that kind device. of leads us directly into digital library build-out. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. the I think. My opinion of the tablet device that's coming is actually similar. I think they're going to try to innovate with this. They're not going to just say, "Look, here's our, um, you know, tablet." tablet PC. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's going to be a, a, a device that they want to go in and they want to try to revolutionize the way education functions, for instance, because Apple's always had this real interest in education, and the the Kindle, even the Kindle DX, is not. A, great for textbooks and that uh if if apple and it's almost 500 bucks if apple comes out with a seven eight hundred dollar machine that's color has touch screen and um you know has a much more interactive uh sort of format for for magazines um books blogs um newspapers textbooks just add your uh, itunes i would think it would be something like itunes but it's a tablet and it's itunes Yep, I, it's more of an iTunes tablet than a than a PC tablet to yep. me. I, I think that's exactly right. I think they take iTunes and they turn it into a digital library. There's a digital sort of library component of iTunes where you can buy books and magazine subscriptions and newspaper subscriptions, um, textbooks if, in education. And remember, and, Apple wants to get in the living room really, really badly. The Apple TV obviously has been, for all intents and purposes, a failure, even though I love mine. But it's pretty much been a failure. If this device could also plug into your big screen TV, which everyone seems to be buying now, I don't know. Then you got something. Yeah, or imagine it has a little dongle yeah. that, that that fits on your TV, and then it wirelessly streams stuff to your TV. Uh, you know, you can download your videos or whatever on this little device, and then it automatically streams to your TV through this little you know wireless dongle that that you plug in. All of a sudden, that you know, I, I think that's m- maybe less likely, but you know, you never know. I mean, that that's the that's stuff a that us us tech geeks get excited about. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> you know, and I, there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, obviously, Apple's going to be coming out with some new products really soon. Uh, we also didn't talk about the uh, purported September 9th event that is being christened Beatles Day. They're coming out with rock band Beatles. The CDs, the digital remastered CDs are coming out. I got a big PR from their PR firm yesterday about the whole thing. I wrote a blog up at MyMac.com. I think that's also going to be the day that Apple releases, finally, the Beatles library in iTunes. Um, so there's a lot of stuff coming up. It's really... You know, the nice thing about following Apple professionally is you just never know what you're going to be talking about a year from now. It's 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 so much fun. Yeah, you know it's funny as a journalist, um, Apple is actually the worst company to work with. I mean, they 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 stiff arm us all the time, yep. I, and maybe it's different experience with you than me. I don't nope. know, but they, <laughs> they're like the worst. They are the absolute worst company to work with. But we totally have this like dysfunctional relationship with them of kind of like the um, the person that was in high school that you know they really weren't that much 
good. They were maybe they weren't that much more attractive than somebody else but they were because they were mysterious and they didn't um you know always give you the time of day you sort of there was a there was an attractiveness to that and they just the thing about apple is they are difficult and they are um a pain in the in the butt and uh but they are fascinating they they just do fascinating things and they don't put crap out there you know so much of what uh, a lot of the stuff that i end up covering you know people release products that i think a committee obviously released this product because no sane person in the right mind by themselves would ever release this product because it's totally misses the mark um you just don't see much of that from apple apple really uh releases great stuff and they're very creative um and uh they're just fascinating to follow jason uh, i want to thank you for being on the show this week um it, it's great to have you I, I love the website i know you're on twitter you're jason heiner on twitter that's right yep so and my blog is uh heiner.techrepublic.com cool well we appreciate you coming on hopefully we'll get you again on the in the future and uh just really uh really like your writing man you're 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 great at it. I'm glad you got out of the IT industry proper and, and got into the, the writing aspect because I think you're much bigger impact this way. And, yeah, you know, whatever company that lost you is an IT guy, um, the, the rest of the IT professionals out there benefited from it. So we <laughs> Thank appreciate you. No, it. You, you guys are great. I'm glad to be here. This is a lot of fun. We want to ask everyone to listen to the podcast. Go up to iTunes and give us a review if you please. Uh, we'd love to read the feedback up there. If you want to send any email to the show, it's feedback at MyMac.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash MyMac. David B. Cohen on uh, Twitter. And Guy, I keep forgetting yours. Mac Parrot. I keep wanting to say Mac Hippie. You're going to have to one of these. Is, does somebody already have Mac <laughs> no, I've got, Hippie? I've got, no, no, no. I've, I've, well, I don't have Mac Hippie on uh, on Twitter, but I, I've got both of those uh, both of those domains. You're going to be I'm a rich man really one day. Doing- Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I had someone that owns a domain name, and I actually posted a uh, twit mic up on Twitter about this. Somebody has a domain name, and it's mymacintosh.com, and he owns all of them, mymacintosh.com, .net, .org, .I don't know, all of them. And he really thinks they're worth about $4 million, and all the, the websites are is a picture of him. And I keep telling him they're not worth anything unless you produce content. Uh, a big company is not going to buy a domain name because the domain name doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, five years ago, what's Twitter.com mean? It was it was worthless. What was Amazon? Amazon is a big woman. I mean, you know, the, the name doesn't mean anything anymore. And uh, I, But I still think you're going to be a rich man guy. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we're going to wrap up the I show. Die. Next week, we're going to have another listener invite. And... Uh, Oh, okay, David. Thanks for the, the, the link. You're confusing me when I'm trying to wrap the show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so, Jason, thanks for being on. And uh, David and Guy, as always, we'll see you next week. Thanks for downloading and listening to the MyMac.com podcast. 